0: Hey, everyone. We're going to start this episode of At a Distance a little differently than usual. This episode marks a momentous and, for me, decidedly emotional occasion. It is the final episode of At a Distance, at least for the foreseeable future. When Andrew and I launched this podcast back in March 2020, not even a year into the slowdown, we viewed it as much more than a quick response to the pandemic's arrival— We saw it as a long-view tool to try and make sense of things and to share our findings with others who felt similarly disoriented or who were also looking for clarity, connection, and meaning amidst the chaos. While at first making the series felt urgent and pressing, by the end of 2020 and a whirlwind of 100 episodes later, I was able to better understand the true value of what we'd done— Here was a repository of what various visionaries across disciplines were thinking while at home during that transformative pandemic year. Now, after almost four years of making at a distance and having mostly emerged from the pandemic, I feel this project has run its course until perhaps the next global lockdown, whenever that may be. And it's time for now to say goodbye. Thank you to all of you for listening and for engaging with these deep conversations. I can't even begin to express what a life giving project this has been and how meaningful it has been to hear from so many of you over the course of this. I should add, though, that I'll continue to host the Slowdown's other podcast, Time Sensitive. If you haven't listened to it yet, you can find it on timesensitive.fm or search Time Sensitive on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And now for the episode. I can't think of a better guest than this one to close out this series. Rebecca Solnit. One of my absolute favorite writers, Rebecca is the author of more than 20 books, from A Paradise Built in Hell, to Hope in the Dark, to Orwell's Roses, many of which provided me with a profound sense of groundedness and hope, or at least optimism, during some of the darkest days of the pandemic. A Paradise Built in Hell, which I highly recommend reading if you haven't, happened to get mentioned on our very first episode of At a Distance, with the environmentalist and journalist Bill McKibben. He recommended it to us at that crucial moment in time just as we entered the first pandemic lockdown. So in that way, this episode is a full-circle moment. Rebecca is also the co-editor of the new collection of essays, Not Too Late, Changing the Climate Story from Despair to Possibility, which we name The Slowdown's June 2023 book of the month Presenting what may be the most zeitgeisty, potent, and on-point package of writing and thought related to the climate crisis to date, Not Too Late is a vital and enlivening book that, as it makes glaringly clear, arrives at a pivotal moment in the history of humankind and the planet. Thank you again for listening and for your continued support of The Slowdown. And now, here's my conversation with Rebecca. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to At a Distance.
1: Joy to be with you. Thank you.
0: So I wanted to start just by saying that this episode is kind of a full circle moment. On the first episode of At a Distance, which we recorded with Bill McKibben back in March 25th, 2020, he said, I highly recommend Rebecca Solnit's great book, A Paradise Built in Hell, about the fact that When there's an earthquake or a fire or a storm, humans come to each other's aid without governments organizing them. You published this book in 2009, so I wanted to ask, did you see a large resurgence of interest during the pandemic in in this particular title?
1: I absolutely did, both because of the pandemic and the growing climate crisis. In fact, I wrote the book because I knew we were in an era of climate crisis, which meant there would both be more disasters and more intense disasters. And how people actually respond to them is really important equipment. And of course, there's a lot of ways corruption, racism, fear promulgated by authorities in the media can corrupt disaster response. But the evidence shows that when those things are not huge factors, and sometimes, as with Hurricane Katrina, even when they are the great majority of people are brave, altruistic, generous, resourceful, and behave wonderfully in disaster, which is not what Hollywood and newspapers during Katrina were telling us about who we are.
0: Right. And now that we've had some time to look back at the pandemic in particular, I, this 2020 to 2022 period of lockdowns and I wanted to ask you, how do you think we fared as a society now that there's sort of hindsight a little bit? What's your take on human behavior during those years? And what are some of the lasting transformations from that COVID-19 moment as you see it?
1: Those are two really interesting, huge questions. And the record on how people in this country, the USA, behaved is so mixed. And of course, With different leadership under an Obama or Biden presidency, it's hard to imagine. But I know that at one point, a huge percentage of the misinformation about the pandemic, about vaccines, about contagion, were said to be coming directly from the then president, Donald J. Trump. And the way that the community... Mindedness, the mutuality, the herd immunity, et cetera, the ways that we are all in this together were so offensive to a kind of libertarian, rugged individualist mindset, makes the other forces corrupting the response not so surprising. The idea you should wear a mask or get a vaccine, not just to protect yourself. But to protect someone else was apparently offensive to people who believe in radical selfishness. And a lot of other stuff did not go particularly well, including around the division of labor in a lot of households. One thing that made me crazy is there are so many stories about, oh, the burden has fallen on women and no stories about here's Fred or Sam or Jack or whoever who dropped the burden on her and was having a high old time because he wasn't pulling his weight around the house. You know, one thing that's what's been amazing, I've been talking about this with my friends, is that people just, it was miserable in many ways. And it feels like people's response right now is they don't want to think about it, want to talk about it, pretend that it's fully over. Well, lots of people are still getting it and some people are still dying of it or getting long COVID. But something remarkable happened And first I want to say there were people who died, there were people who were devastated because of those deaths or financially or in other ways. There were frontline workers whose workloads became terrifying and intense, including medical people and vital service um, workers. But a whole lot of us, our lives changed shape in some significant way. And I think the slowdown, the localization, the being, Closer to the closest people to you, being more attentive to detail. And of course, all that sourdough bread that got made was kind of <laughs> a subject of considerable amusement. But people walked, they bought bikes, they got, they you know, garden seed sales doubled that first year. People did a lot of interesting things that might actually be useful kind of trials for what living with modest impact in a climate crisis era could be like. And I could see and heard that a lot of people were in some ways were experiencing a kind of depth and richness in some ways. And of course, I don't want to discount all the loss and suffering and loneliness and claustrophobia and the disruption of kids' lives and things that went on, but there was also this other stuff. And I feel like there's a lot to learn from it, but I'm not particularly convinced that we learned from it. And I keep meaning to write something about it to try and do my tiny bit to rectify one millionth tiny corner of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel strange even asking you questions about that period, because that's how we've moved on. I, I, like y- You don't really hear about it in the news so much anymore. Even just in day-to-day conversation, people are kind of past it. But as you pointed out, it's still very much here.
1: It is both in the long term impact, all those uh, shuttered storefronts and ways that lives have changed, and um, as the virus itself, which keeps mutating and getting more contagious. So, yeah, and I didn't stop thinking about it, so I don't mind being asked about it. <laughs> I'm being out of step with the society around me is one of my special gifts.
0: <laughs> yeah. During these particular years, you had three books come out, so I wanted to ask you about those. Recollections of My Non-Existence, which was published on March 10th, 2020, Orwell's Roses in October 2021, and Waking Beauty in November 2022. So first, what was it like to have Recollections come out right as COVID-19 arrived?
1: I saw the pandemic coming. My then-partner was a pulmonologist, uh, thanks to him and other medical friends, I understood the situation very clearly and was trying to convince my American and foreign publishers that this book tour they were planning for me, which involved a lot of amazing people like Mary Beard and, and Adrian Re Brown and uh, all this good stuff, that we might need to cancel it. And I felt like the response was, either that I was a hypochondriac or a slacker or something, that they didn't really get it. And so I went to do the first gig, which was with Leslie Jamison. I had a lot of hand sanitizer. I sat really far apart from her on stage. I advised the audience to sit far apart from each other and go home if they were sniffly or anything. And that night I saw just a little bit more evidence And I basically pulled the fire alarm on my publishers and said, we are canceling all the tours and we are doing this together. This will not be something I do to you. This will be something we do together. Because I didn't want it to be like you pulled out of this great thing we did for you. And, of course, as time passed, they gradually grasped that, yes, um, audiences of 500 gathered in rooms together were not going to happen in later March of 2020 or any time in the next year or so thereafter. And I just was a little ahead of the curve, maybe as well as so often being not exactly behind the curve, but thinking in different frames of time. Every once in a blue moon, I'm a tiny bit ahead. And actually, my wonderful publicity manager Maya at Viking at the time put together a fantastic Zoom tour and we just continued doing what we were doing and it was actually great and I discovered the wonderful world of being on book tour without having to put on shoes let alone have jet lag and eat terrible food in weird places there was a real hunger for conversation in that period I also spent much of March telling fairy tales live online, on Facebook live, ultimately to some pretty huge audiences and having really interesting conversations digitally around the need people felt to find new forms of contact as the old ones had been shut down. And of course I joined the anti-sewing squad, the most glorious form of mutual aid I encountered during the pandemic which made a third of a million masks by hand out of cloth to distribute during that shortage of medical grade masks and formed these incredible relationships and alliances with the Standing Rock Reservation, the Navajo Reservation, marginalized and frontline communities and formed a community among ourselves that was amazing. It was the best part of my pandemic. And that also started in March of 2020.
0: How did you decide to pursue Orwell's Roses and Waking Beauty as your next book projects? Like, were, were those primarily conceived during the pandemic?
1: No, Orwell's Roses began all of a sudden. I did not think I had anything to add to the considerable literature, including about seven or eight biographies on George Orwell. Although he'd been a really important influence on me when I realized... Very young, I was going to be an essayist and a political essayist. But in order to help my friend Sam Green, who was going to make a a documentary on trees that six years later he's actually making, I went to the place Orwell wrote about in a glorious, gorgeous 1946 essay where he describes planting fruit trees and rose bushes. And for Sam's sake, I was looking for the fruit trees in a uh, Little Hamlet in southeastern England. And when I got there, the lovely people who lived there, who Sam had written to, w- invited me in and said, well, the fruit trees were cut down in the 1990s and we had a cup of tea and talked about this and that, and they showed me old pictures of the house. And then very casually they said, well, the trees are gone, but would you like to see the roses that Orwell planted? And boy, would I! Uh, it was so exciting. There's now that they now have a bit more skepticism or uncertainty that those are actually the rose bushes he planted, but they brought me to two big old rambling roses that were still blooming on November second, twenty seventeen, and two things struck me powerfully, and I really had this sense of epiphany, elation, and awe. One was this direct contact with living things that had contacted George Orwell, who had really felt as remote to me as Dickens or Dante or Lao Tzu or something like that. Although I've since met his son and Quentin Copp, the son of his commander in Spain, and he's a little less remote because of that. But the other thing was, I'd known this essay since my early twenties and I'd never thought hard enough about What did it mean that our great anti-fascist, anti-authoritarian essayist was also such a passionate cultivator of roses, lover of gardens, pursuer of beauty and pleasure? And that felt like it opened up space to talk about a lot of things that I think are really significant. The left overall and a lot of mainstream culture tends to be very austere very transactional and utilitarian. You know, the general idea is that activists should do nothing but put their shoulder to the wheel without rest, like some kind of miserable earthbound Sisyphuses. The fact that Orwell regularly made room to garden and pursue all these other pleasures in his life while doing a pretty good job of being politically engaged, going to fight against fascism directly with a rifle in the trenches of the Spanish Civil War, felt like it opened up space with him as an example to talk about the ways that not only can beauty, pleasure, and joy be political goals, but that they're part of what sustains us while we work towards what we believe in. So it opened up room to do a lot. And then also, how do you write about George Orwell in an age of climate change? The fact that I had long thought I would write a book about an encounter between two characters. Um, didn't mean that I realized one of them would be rose bushes. And the fact that the plant kingdom, which really made our atmosphere and maintains it, has had really, until now, a more powerful role in shaping the earth and the animal kingdom. And that plants would also have agency, and a real role as characters in this book was one of the answers to writing in an age of climate crisis for me. And so I I didn't start it during the pandemic. I had to get recollections of my non-existence, my feminist memoir out of the way. But I wrote it mostly that first year of the pandemic. And it was a great way to spend the pandemic, I have to say. Although on the other hand, I kept joking that sheltering in place wasn't really a big deal for me because being a writer essentially meant I'd been sheltering in place since 1988 when I went freelance. <laughs> you know, and of course I traveled for work and traveled for other reasons and taught and had human contact, but I had a very easy quarantine compared to most people.
0: It's also a book that comes right after the Trump era and right in a moment when, as you were pointing out earlier, people were gardening.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. And I joke about my feminist work that patriarchy could make the work obsolete if they would just stop doing those things. And Orwell's (laughs) work would become obsolete if lies and fascism and totalitarianism and groupthink and big brotherly behavior and so forth, you know, the kind of dehumanization and mechanization of 1984 uh the manipulations of animal farm if those things no longer happened if we were in utopia his books would be artifacts but of course donald trump and then vladimir putin have done a lot to make 1984 bestsellers and the importance of recognizing that authoritarians not only want to control the economy, the military, the media, but want to control truth, fact, science, and history became extraordinarily relevant in this age. And so that made Orwell very relevant. And I think the nature he went to over and over again relevant. One of the things that's clear in 1984 is that part of how Winston resists the propaganda swirling all around him is by constantly seeking recontact with direct experience with the life of the senses. There's this great line in the book, I'll mangle slightly, but the final command was to ignore the evidence of your eyes and ears, the final command of Big Brother, which means accepting the evidence of your eyes and ears, trusting your own judgment, becoming an autonomous, independent thinking individual with his or her, their feet on the ground, reinforced by your kind of empirical direct sensing uh, and experiencing is really important. And it's really good advice for this time when also we're in a nightmare or we'll never dreamed of, which is the internet, the online world. And just before this talk, I went and took a little walk up the nearest hill. I saw four counties, one bay and a pretty big hawk and a bunch, you know, smelled, actually smelled some roses. And it did serve as part of the preparations to talk with you. So I thought that was really, really a good example. And it wasn't that I'm so besotted with George Orwell, but that I think a lot of the people who are living that deeply now, somebody like the poet Ross Gay, for example, who comes to mind as a passionate gardener, a joyful writer. People often would dismiss a lot of our good contemporary examples. They're queer, they're gay, they're female, they're non-white. But Orwell has a certain unimpeachableness as a very serious person in all capital letters, so he was very useful for my purpose. Not in writing another Orwell biography, but is kind of using him as an example to explore these things and explore his thought on these things.
0: There's one passage in the book that I absolutely love that I wanted to reference here. You write Plants provide us with metaphors and meanings and images with stems, offshoots, graphs roots and branches, information trees, seeds of ideas, fruits of our labor, cross pollinations, ripeness and greenness, and with the symbolic richness of the things we do to our domesticated plants, weeding and pruning, sowing and reaping, and so much more. I was hoping maybe you'd elaborate just a little bit on the power of gardening and this sort of transformational nature of it. And maybe thinking more broadly, like what what do you think would happen in, in a world where every one of us was gardening, where we, were, we all became gardeners?
1: I don't know that, you know, we all, I just visited New York recently. I'm not sure everyone gets to be a gardener and urban density is a very good thing for the climate, but New Yorkers get to walk in Central Park and Prospect Park and other great parks that Frederick Olmsted and others created. We here in San Francisco have Golden Gate Park and a whole lot of coastline. I don't think that we all need to garden. I think people need, and this became a real theme in the book, and the phrase bread and roses the idea is that we not only need bread, which are the practical, tangible, quantifiable things, but we need the roses, the beauty, the joy, the nature and culture. And that's different for different people. It could be skateboarding under the stars or roller derby or, you know, fostering dogs and cats or bird watching or surfing or any number of things. But I do think we need contact with the natural, physical and social world. That list you just read is part of something I've been talking about for about 30 years, which is that we think in metaphors, our metaphors all come from the physical world, a huge number of them from the natural world of plants, animals, bodies, spaces, and natural phenomena, you know, climbing the mountain, turning the tide, taking the straight and narrow road, sunshine laws, under cover of darkness, and... I often see metaphors misused. One of my little pet peeves is a former horse girl just riding the occasional Western horse out here in what used to be the American West. But is on a tight rein, which is actually spelled R-E-I-N because it's about holding your horse's head in by holding the reins attached to the bridle really tightly. Huge numbers of people use that phrase without knowing what the hell it means. And so they spell it R-E-I-G-N and seem to think it's about uptight kings and queens (laughs) or something. But... Metaphors losing their meaning happens when we don't have that direct contact. I have actually gone to ride a horse realizing that I was carrying, yes, a carrot and a stick. I had to bridle this horse that bit while cornered in his stall. Those things helped me, you know, tame the beast. Not that I really used the stick, but his knowing I had it. So the metaphors arise from nature all the time. They renew, they mutate, new ones arise. Uh, sometimes we abandon old ones and there's false metaphors like or analogies all that alpha male bullshit that comes from misinterpretations of wolf behavior but I think we need that contact not only for a sort of mental respite from tinkering with abstract information and being indoors for our bodies but I think our imaginations are stimulated by it and 24 years ago, I wrote a book on walking, and I was interested in how vital walking is to thinking, how often writers from Kant and Wordsworth, pilgrims using walking as a form of prayer, how walking has been a way to think and be that isn't replaceable and doesn't happen so meaningfully on a treadmill either. I think in walking, sometimes you're lost in thought, and then, you know, a bluebird flashes across your path and you're fully present and then you think in a way you couldn't otherwise. So I think we don't all need to garden, but we all need to go out into the world and a world that's maybe a little random and surprising and not entirely under our control. The tendency of wealth and tech to want a totally controlled and managed experience is something I find quite alarming and miserable. inveigh against regularly.
0: So how did Waking Beauty come about, your other book?
1: Well, no, you have, you think you're forgetting my most recent book, actually, which is uh, Not Too Late, Changing the Climate Story from Despair to Possibility, co-edited with Thelma Young, Lieutenant yes. Tabua.
0: Well, I, I fully intended to get into that Oh, one good, too.
1: good. Because <laughs> I was like, well, actually, four books since 2020, which is sort of my norm. But the fairy tale's... You know, our slender little books. The fairy tale illustrator Arthur Rackham, one of the greatest artists from the golden age of illustration, did silhouette illustrations of both Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella for an Englishman who retold them as kind of pompous, very class ridden, wordy, but conventional tellings. And I loved the illustrations, but another illustration. I found, made me realize that Cinderella wasn't so much about getting your guy. It was about the ability to make transformations. The relationship between Cinderella and her fairy godmother matters. You know, the relationship in which rats turn into coach horse or mice turn into coach horses. A rat turns into a coachman. uh, Lizards turn into footmen and so forth. And so I decided to rewrite it. I love fairy tales, love how they're... Usually about powerless, marginalized people finding through kindness, connection, paying close attention often to other marginalized and powerless beings, small things like mice and ants, often old women, the means to change their lives, to get what they need, to exit a condition of oppression. So I love fairy tales. So I rewrote Cinderella for The Modern Child. And I wrote it in part for my wonderful great niece, Ella, who has a younger sister named Maya. And you can't write a book for Ella without writing a book for Maya. And Arthur Rackham had these wonderful silhouettes. So I did a second version where I revised Sleeping Beauty to focus on Sleeping Beauty's younger sister, the Waking Beauty, although it's not really about being beautiful, but the Waking Beauty who stays awake a lot during those hundred years while her older sister is asleep until finally she wakes up at 115 or only 15 since she's just slept to find that her younger sister is 112, and a lot has happened. The silhouette illustrations, I thought, were wonderful because they didn't feel so racially specific the way the full-color ones did. It felt if you were Iranian or Peruvian, the illustrations didn't exclude you from the story, and so I love them for those things, so... It was a pleasure to do, and Maya approves of it quite heartily. She's (laughs) six now. Came out when she
0: was five. Okay, now let's turn to your other book, Not Too Late, which came out earlier this year. Tell me about this project and what your hopes and goals are for it, because it it is ambitious. It extends beyond the book.
1: Yeah, Not Too Late is a project I co-founded with Thelma young Lutuna Tabua, a longtime climate organizer based in Fiji married to an indigenous Fijian, Fenton Lutuna Tabua, who's also in our our book, we started talking actually brought together by Pandemic Mutual Aid about the fact that nobody was directly addressing the despair, anxiety, grief, fear around climate. Or if they were addressing it, they're often addressing it By trying to deal with emotions without really dealing with the cause of those emotions, kind of isolating them out. And for us, it's like if you're very upset because your house is on fire, putting out the fire or at least joining the people trying to put out the fire or at least knowing people are trying to put out the fire might actually change your feelings, including feelings of powerlessness and loneliness. Because what we found is that a lot of those emotions are based on misapprehensions circulated, sometimes by bad actors, sometimes just by badly done news coverage. But a lot of people think we don't have the solutions. It's too late. Nobody cares. The media is not covering this story. The climate movement hasn't done anything. We never win. We've had no victories. And the list goes on, you know, the kind of tailspin of despair, telling itself stories to despair more. So Thelma and I decided to work together. We started the project, uh, which launched in May of 2022. And as we were preparing to launch it, I was telling a group of friends about it who said, Rebecca, this needs to be a book. And I somehow thought I was virtuously not writing books, even though it's the main thing I know how to do to be a better climate activist. But since it is the main thing I know how to do, and I actually like doing it, and I'd secretly been thinking about it, I got the wonderful Anthony Arnav at Haymarket Books to agree to do a book by early the next morning when I was able to tell that group of people at 10.30 that it was gonna be a book, thank you. (laughs) And then Thelma and I had a year to put it all together between commissioning the essays, doing the interviews, and having an actual publication in bookstores. And that was a fun, wild
0: ride. There's something I really love about this book, which is at its heart, there's this core idea of the importance of the long view, of taking the long view. And this is something we've talked about a lot on the episodes in this podcast, and it's something you sort of frame in the context of the climate movement, that we should be taking a long view on on the climate movement to really understand the progress. So what has uh, doing so taught you? What has this sort of long view approach to thinking and research and writing taught you?
1: Everything is the short version The short view is to see things without context. The short view is usually too short to see that change is happening and how it happens. And this matters for everything, not just climate. I've heard a lot of people be like, oh, feminism has failed because we lost Roe versus Wade. I'm, I'm 62. I was born into a world that was so horrific for women in which culturally and by law and every institution, women were unequal. And that was so accepted and unquestioned. And so much of it wasn't even visible to feminists who had to kind of teach themselves oh, yeah, this is another problem. This is another problem. We need to even create the language for this. You know, another example might be you look at a good decision by a parliament, a congress, a Supreme Court. The short view is, oh, these nice, powerful people handed this down to us. We should be grateful to them. The long view is they were the very end of a process When it comes to most of the good progressive decisions, whether it's marriage equality, rights for queer people, environmental protections, women's rights, rights for the disabled, other human rights, anti-racism, et cetera. They come at the very end of the process, which begins in the margins with the grassroots, with people struggling with people changing the culture and consciousness itself. So the formal change is the last thing that happens in a chain of events. In the long view, you see your own power, the power of grassroots movements. You see the nature of change itself. You see how different the world is from how it used to be. I also think a lot of despair comes from a sense of staticness. Nothing's changing. If you look at a one-day view, a one-year view, even a five-year view. The world can look very static. If you look at a 50-year view, it's mind-blowing. One of the things I've started saying a lot is, we cannot imagine the world of 2073, and we need to do so much to make it a livable world. But we can look back at 1973, 50 years back, because the past is clad in daylight, while the future is dark. And we can see how radically different 1973 was, how so many things were at work, but in early stages, the environmental movement was in very early stages, queer liberation, the women's movement, the black civil rights movement was often thought to run aground. Maybe it was pausing a little or slowed down, but Native American rights, indigenous rights, rights for the disabled, movements for other non-white groups were all really blooming and radical ideas were flourishing. Everything good we enjoy in 2023 comes from work people were doing 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago. So we can see our ancestors In that sense, even though we can't see our descendants, but we can learn looking backward how to try to be the people somebody in 2073 will look back on and be grateful the way I am to all those people who changed the world in ways I don't think anybody would have found conceivable if you told them we're going to have marriage equality, we're going to have a black woman vice president, we're going to have banned all the gender segregation in the Ivy Leagues. We're going to think really differently about nature, land, water, air. We're gonna have the tools to exit the age of fossil fuel. It's having a big perspective temporarily like standing on top of a hill, gives you a, a spatial perspective. The close-up view is a kind of myopia in which you can't see clearly. I wrote a piece for The Guardian last year whose opening line I greatly enjoyed writing. It starts, I feel like a tortoise at a mayfly party. Because the short view where you lose one campaign, for example, so often turns into, oh, we never win. One of the things we put in not too late is a several page long, extremely incomplete list of climate victories just to remind people we've stopped so many pipelines and... Uh, coal projects and toxic power plants and extractions. And we have not done nearly enough, but we've done a lot. So the long view, I think, for all of us is everything in just understanding who we are, where we are, where we've been, and where we could go.
0: What do you imagine people might be saying in 2073 about people now in 2023, or our world now?
1: I think they'll know that most people couldn't imagine how different it was going to be. And if we're talking specifically about 2023, not nearly enough people were doing what needed to be done to stop the worst-case scenario runaway climate change. But it was also a remarkable era. We are in the middle of an energy revolution that is also invisible in the short term. Most people don't know. We didn't have the... The tools to leave the age of fossil fuel behind 20 years ago, wind and solar were expensive and utterly inadequate, really primitive technologies. We didn't have good battery storage technologies, etc. It wasn't that long ago I realized like, oh, we had an energy revolution because we now actually have very viable roadmaps for how to stop burning fossil fuel the stuff that is destroying the atmosphere, the stable, beautiful, nurturing Earth we just spent the last 10,000 years on, we and all the other species. And then much more recently I realized, oh yeah, we're just at the beginning of this revolution. Wind and solar are like Model T cars were back in the day. That was not the final state of internal combustion. Designed for efficiency and performance and the cleanliness of emissions insofar as... And I hate to describe emissions that way, but they are a little better than they were 50 years ago or 100 years ago. So we're just at the beginning of finding better materials for battery storage and all kinds of other things happening. And of course solar is the cheapest form of electricity on 91% of the planet, and the prices continue to plummet. So it's kind of an exciting era, but I think that the people in 2073 maybe are going to be grateful to the explosion of energy, the tipping point of the climate movement in 2024, 2025, because we really need to scale it up. We need Good things are happening, but they need to happen a lot faster. The bad things, namely the burning of fossil fuel and related climate destruction around uh, methane production, cement production, etc. That all needs to change a lot faster than it's changing.
0: I wanted to say here that on the subject of storytelling, I love how you've described stories as quote-unquote life rafts. For me, your, your books have been that. And I read nine of them <laughs> over the past few years, most of them during the pandemic. Your writing is so reaffirming, so life-giving. So I wanted to ask you, what books or authors do you find particularly reaffirming or life-giving? And what types of stories do you tend to seek out?
1: I look for stories that give me a new vantage point, a fresh view, let me see the world in a way I didn't before, cause an epiphany. And there's so many. I have a kind of canon of authors who've been important to me. I think Subcumnante Marcos of the Zapatistas really showed me how political language could be poetic language. It didn't have to be the tired old Marxist jargon, which is so stale. I think it's at best, a cure for insomnia. You know, Dr. Keltner's book, Awe, which, and I know you did a podcast with him, really reorganized my understanding of my own writing and my own life in ways that were so exciting. I find Bill McKibben's incredible ability to frame what's going on with climate and climate solutions really exhilarating. There's a young writer, Julian Aguan from Guam, who's in our anthology, who came along like the answer to the question I had. Arundhati Roy was kind of the visionary for the anti-globalization movement at the turn of the millennium. Who's our visionary? Our person who can make this struggle poetic and visionary. And Julian Aguan is definitely it. I did a... Public conversation at City Lights um, with him last year, and it was kind of great. Just before we started, he whispered in my ear, make sure we talk about beauty, joy, and abundance. And that's (laughs) not always what happens when you talk about people on the front lines of the climate crisis, which the indigenous people of Guam Definitely are, and I was. It was so great. I read a lot of poetry. I find Ross Gay, who I mentioned, pretty exciting. Carolyn Forche. I was just reading Natalie Diaz last night. That incredible book of hers, postcolonial love poem, is like a garden where I get lost every time and will never finish exploring its richnesses. And of course. If you'd given me this as homework, I would have scurried around the house and prepared a more comprehensive list, but (laughs) that's the start.
0: Yeah, that's a good start. And if you can share, I'm curious, and I know you've mentioned the the climate crisis clearly occupies so much for you and in your mind, but are there any particular subjects that you find yourself spending a lot of time thinking about at this particular moment in time?
1: I'm always interested in storytelling, which you mentioned. I think a huge part of my own work as a writer has been not just to make stories, which is the very conventional job of writers and creative people, but to break stories. I was trained as a journalist at UC Berkeley. And of course the phrase break the story means, you know, to get the scoop, be the first person to tell something new. But I think of it another way. Stories are prisons, traps, habits of mind, and so often we need to break the story. So a lot of my thinking isn't so much about a subject, as how do we learn to change the story, to see when a story is a trap? For example, we tell a story over and over that was actually probably true 20 years ago, more or less, that we now live in an age of abundance and the climate crisis requires austerity from us. But Thelma and I like to stand that on on its head to say, We live in a world full of poison and corruption, literal and political poison, thanks to the domination of the fossil fuel industry and the physical presence of fossil fuel and its toxicity at every stage. What the climate crisis requires of us could be an age of abundance where we could be rich in hope, rich in connection, rich in time, rich in confidence in the ethicalness of those systems. You know, what happens when you change the story from emphasizing material goods to emphasizing being rich in these other ways of friendship, connection, t- quality of life, quality of time, hopefulness, a sense of safety, etc. So, you know, I continue to think about gender politics and I continue to do feminist work because I can't help it continue to pay attention to the natural world beyond just the climate crisis, continue to hang out with the people I love, continue to think about deep time and how to convey to people that slowness is a superpower. And by slowness, I mean not dragging your feet, but by slow time, as opposed to quick time, knowing something deeply, knowing someone deeply, having a deep relationship to place, Understanding how something has changed over 20 or 50 or 500 years instead of last week. Understanding the origins of things. So I keep myself busy.
0: (laughs) Well, I, I I have one final question. And we've ended almost every episode of At a Distance with this question. And it's the perfect question for you. I've always wanted to ask you this since hope has been such a through line of your work, not only with A Paradise Built in Hell and Not Too Late, but also hope in the dark, to state an obvious one. And the question is, what is giving you the most hope right now?
1: I always feel like we can't see the future. As I said, it's dark. That's what hope in the dark means. It's kind of a pro-darkness book about the the radical uncertainty of what's going to happen is also the radical possibility of what we can do. So my hope really, which is always thought to be about the future, comes from the past. Looking backward, having historical imagination has taught me to see something of how change works, see how much the world has changed in my lifetime, see how much the climate movement has accomplished, how much feminism has accomplished, how much our values and beliefs and orientations have changed. A lot of what made me hopeful was two major historical forces when I was younger. One was the collapse of the East Bloc communist countries and the Soviet Union, utterly unanticipated and brought about mostly through nonviolent social organizing by things that were dismissed as puny and insignificant until they happened, and by people who were hopeful against terrible odds, people who were hopeful under totalitarianism that maybe things could be different and acted without knowing what the consequences would be. The other thing was the resurgence of the visibility and power of Indigenous peoples around the world and the respect by a settler, colonialist, non-Indigenous uprooted people, of which I am a prime example as an Irish Catholic, Russian Jew, very disrupted, uprooted people. Indigenous people, I think, have changed everything. If you acknowledge that North America and the Americas had been pretty significantly inhabited for thousands of years, you can stop telling the story. You can break the story that somehow nature and culture are at odds with each other, that human beings are ultimately destructive, you can recognize that what we used to call wilderness was homeland, home to people who weren't destroying it. You know, I think indigenous people have given a lot of the rest of us a sense of that kind of seventh generation sense of deep time. Julian Aguan, who's indigenous to Guam, said something beautiful about indigenous people having hope because they have a deep collective memory. Um, I think Indigenous people have modeled, and I get this from the language of Robin Wall Kimmerer, that we can stop thinking about responsibility, which sounds so dutiful, and do your homework, do your chores, and think about reciprocity. Out of gratitude, we can give back to the natural world. I think that we're radically different people than we were 30 years ago, that we have a deep kind of respect and yearning for connection to the natural world that's really different than it was those years ago. And as I get older, I feel like I've witnessed so much change directly. I think another huge force, and this comes also from non-Western thought, but I'd say more from Buddhism, but also from the radical human rights movements, I think we're much more anti-authoritarian than we used to be. We don't accept the right of parents to beat their children, husbands to beat their wives, the inequality in heterosexual marriage that was the norm, other kinds of inequality, racial, ethnic, religious, age-defined, colonial, wealth-defined. But I also think kindness has become a really important value and touchstone in the culture. I read novels written you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and see how absent it is and how that wasn't something people were asking themselves. You know, I grew up when corporal punishment was considered legitimate in the schools, when wife-beating was something people made snickering jokes about. All this makes me hopeful, seeing how much has already happened, that we're living in essentially a revolutionary time not revolution in the narrow sense of regime change although there's been lots of regime changes but deeper revolution because you can change a regime and the patrilineal dominated household is still the you know the patriarchal household the old hierarchies the old ways of treating the natural world or the poor or whatever might still be the same so regime change from the top doesn't do it this imaginative change everywhere, often starting from the margins, the grassroots, the bottom is the real revolution. So I believe that we're well into a revolution. We need a lot more of it. But looking back at how much we've had, I find not just encouraging, but exhilarating and kind of amazing. And I think we should all be amazed by it. But for that, Even though I think people think of amazement as something instantaneous, we might need to slow down and take the long view, which seems to accord so well with the title of this podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful, Rebecca. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: You're welcome. What a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear the entire archive of At a Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find our other podcasts, Time Sensitive, on timesensitive.fm or by searching Time Sensitive on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. This episode was produced by Ramon Broza, Emily Jang, and Johnny Simon.